Welcome to Commuter Highlights from First Church Belfast. Here we've distilled our normal Sunday service into a call to worship, a prayer, two readings, a sermon and an organ outro for you to listen to on your way to work, out on a walk or wherever. If you feel so inclined, you can support our work by going to firstchurchbelfast.org and clicking on the donate button. We really would appreciate it. Here is this week's Commuter Highlights from First Church, Belfast. Good morning everyone and a very warm welcome this to our service of worship here in, in First Church, Belfast. Come, let us worship God who is mystery. God who is not contained by any one religious system. God who is certainly not contained by our minds and hearts. Come, let us worship God. God who wills dignity for every person and every family. God who lies at the heart of each life and speaks, speaks to the depth of each heart. God who is constant adventure, constant movement, constant presence. Come, let us worship God. And we begin by joining together in prayer. God of time, we thank you for the moments of sunrise and sunset with their brilliant colours of promise. We thank you for moments of stillness when we know peace and tranquillity. We thank you for moments of joy and laughter with their sense of shared hope. We thank you for moments of truth when we know wonder and awe. We thank you for moments of sadness with tears shed for love. Help us to find in each moment your promised gift of life abundant and your presence with us now. Come, let us return to God, singing songs of love wonderful and true. Come, let us turn to God, lamenting our sin, sharing our sorrow and shame. Come, let us turn to our neighbours, confessing our wrong, seeking forgiveness and offering peace. Come, let us turn ourselves away from pride and envy towards humility and service. Turn again, O God, and give us life, that your people may rejoice in you. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew within us a right spirit. Give us again the joy of your help, and with your spirit of freedom, sustain us. And we pray the prayer that Jesus prayed, taught when he said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. As we look around this beautiful building, we can't be but impressed by the history and legacy that we inherit. The following poem, although meant by the writer to describe a specific family event, it might be applied to us as a church as we reflect on this legacy 
and what we hand on to future generations. Grace bequeathed. Up the stairs from under the bed, we pull out the old brown travel case. Scrolls, documents and envelopes, labelled clear with her own neat hand. She'd prepared with care for such a time. Her boys would read aloud her will. Her girls would listen through the welling tears. Simple, gentle, fair, she always was. She must have smiled at least a bit to see us all so gathered in the glen. Her smile, short-lived, she didn't want to leave, but left she did, and left a lot. She left us much more than jewels and effects, so much more than a fine stone house on land. Her legacies in the grandchild's open smile, her riches were her gentle poise and grace. The second poem I'd like to read I take as a plea to God for clear personal vision, especially on Sunday mornings, both practical and spiritual. But perhaps again, maybe this can be applied to us here in this our community in First Church Belfast. It's called Kingfisher Blues. Near the Zamfire he sat, starting when we came, leaving his trolley perch, which had caught the weeds on their way to our grey Belfast loch, a darting shock of meaningful blue. Him, the first I'd really seen. Eyes evolved much more than mine. He knows what he is after, what he's for. Even when he enters, another medium, a third eyelid and a second fovea. Oh, for a bird's eye view on Sunday morn. Our second reading this morning comes from Mark's Gospel, reading some verses from chapter 12. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes, and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance say long prayers, and they will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury pots. And many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. Amen. Earlier this week I read a list of the things parents often teach their children about religion. This on prayer. 
you'd better pray that that stain comes out of the carpet. On obedience. Because I'm your mother and I said so, that's why. On compassion. Keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. On perseverance. You'll sit there until you've eaten every single one of those vegetables. On the blessing of receiving. You're going to get it when you get home. On tradition. You're just like your father. On wisdom. When you get to our age, you'll understand. And on justice. One day you'll have kids. And I hope they turn out just like you. Any resemblance to family members, living or deceased, is purely coincidental. However, what we hear and what we do believe about life and learn from significant others can make a huge difference to us. And it's the basis of most modern psychotherapy, which is all about the story that we tell ourselves. We say to ourselves, I'm not good enough or I never succeed at anything or things like that. And sometimes it's just the conclusion we come to ourselves, but other times it's the story that's been handed down to us, usually by parents or teachers or church leaders or other such people. And sometimes we have to unlearn much of that story. The traditional interpretations given to Mark's story of the widow and the coins can be one such example. On its own, which is usually how we hear it every three years because of the cycle of the lectionary, this story lends itself easily to moralising about the heroic sacrifice of a poor widow who gave everything she had. But I want to suggest here that there is a broader, more important story that Mark is hinting at. And a broader story seems to be about naming a system which abuses poor people. Powerful people who financially exploit vulnerable widows at one end of it, and an announcement that you can't do that and get away with it at the other end. And in the middle, the story of the widow and the coins. And putting these all together, what we hear is Mark, a storyteller, weaving together echoes of the Hebrew scripture's constant concern for widows and other outcasts. And we hear in it the voices of the Hebrew prophets like Isaiah and Amos, who condemned the religious establishment of their day for exploiting the vulnerable. And also we hear echoes of the early church's conflicts and difficulties with the church, the temple leaders of that day. So is the story of the widow and the coins a story about boundless generosity and self-sacrifice? Or is it more pointed evidence undergirding Mark's Jesus who speaks truth to power against the exploitations of his day? Coming up once every three years and told and heard as a single story, the widow's story is often offered as a model of stewardship to encourage giving to the church. 
And yet when the stories are stitched together, it suggests a very different reading. It becomes nothing short of a radical protest against the use of religion and politics and power to victimise those who are powerless and vulnerable. And that's a very different take to the one we're normally used to. And it's also a very challenging uh, assault on our normal understanding of this biblical story. Because heard with those ears, this story becomes an exposition of the politics of compassion. The Bible is both a dangerous book and a book that should only be read by adults. I'll explain what I mean. You see, when we tell or listen to or quote from biblical stories, we need to be very careful about how we do that. Because our general tendency is to take these stories or quotes out of context. To do that or either to over-spiritualise or domesticate them. To hear beyond the domestication of biblical stories often means we'll have to unlearn much of which, that which we've been taught. One example, of course, is the nativity story, which is fast approaching us, maybe too fast. The Christmas card image of the baby Jesus lying in a crib, cushioned by the hay and surrounded by a, a tent of animals, is one that's very familiar to us. But if you've ever been with your kids or grandkids to the Ark Farm or Streamvale, you'll remember the distinct aroma of those places. You're basically surrounded by a distinct aroma. And modern scholarship would suggest that the nativity story is not an historically accurate account. But even if it did happen, it would not have been a pleasant experience. It would have been nothing like the picture on the front of your Christmas card. And this idea that we have to unlearn biblical stories can be for some people threatening and also unsettling. But that's what many contemporary biblical scholars are calling for. They're calling us to seek out the broader context of the story, but also to listen with a healthy dose of scepticism. In this telling comment, one scholar, William O'Brien, who comes from a more evangelical background, says this. The scriptures have served as propaganda for slavery, subjugation of women, even ethnic cleansing. Yet many of us believe the Bible is profoundly life-giving, offering a vision of justice, salvation, peace and human dignity. And he goes on. The word must be liberated from dangerous distortions, untruths and half-truths. To open our lives to the guiding truth of the biblical revelation, we may need to unlearn much of what we've been taught about the Bible. A system which keeps people in poverty is evil. No ifs or buts. But to that one individual person, their poverty and their hunger is just that. It's a very real hunger, it's a very real poverty, and it's experienced every day. And that's the hard saying, and, and its tension shouldn't be softened. 
Widows in the ancient world were especially vulnerable, particularly if they had no sons around to protect them. Both in the Hebrew and the Greek, the terms for widow come from the word roots that suggest helplessness, emptiness or being forsaken. And what all these people have in common is their isolation from the web of love and support and a deep sense of powerlessness. Compare that with the term scribe in the ancient world, which was more wide than we often think about it. Often we think that it's simply about somebody who could read or write, somebody who was vaguely educated and part of a religious group or, or party. But more likely it was a general term for affluent landowners, probably urbanites, who could manipulate the poor brutally through the court system in order to make themselves more wealthy. Indeed, the Old Testament and process theology scholar Robert News says, we in the West live so well because we import cheap goods from overseas made by people in factories who sometimes are brutally underpaid. We live well because they live poorly. We thus should identify ourselves with the scribes in this passage, not the widows. So rather than being a moralizing story about the heroic sacrifice of a poor widow, it's really a story about the need for, for justice in the world. To test my suggestion, let me share with you a comment from the Reverend Beth Quick, uh, an American pastor, who wrote a commentary on this passage in Mark. She writes these words. Perhaps you have heard it said that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer in this world. Or that the top one or two percent hold or own a huge disproportionate percentage of the world's wealth. I have often heard these statistics and shook my head in dismay at the offensive wealth displayed by so many. But what I was shocked to learn, and maybe you will be too, is that I am in the top one percent. To be in the top percent, to be among the richest people in this entire globe, you simply need a household income of about $23,000 a year. The top 10% for the globe earn around $8,000 and up. Jesus speaks about most of us as he speaks about the scribes, not as he speaks of the widow. On learning much of what we've been taught about the Bible is an exciting and challenging experience. And if you were here on Friday, you would have heard uh, John Alderdice uh, in conversation with William Crawley about J.E. Davy and about Davy's attempt to understand the Bible in a more meaningful way, to unpack and unfold and to develop uh, this continuing revelation about who God is and what God wants us to do. And so sharing in that experience with a group of equally minded, open-minded people is a positive and empowering and liberating experience. And as challenging as it can be, we have much to gain when we approach even the most familiar biblical stories as if we've never heard them before. Because it encourages us to probe for a fresh perspective. It encourages us to listen for new voices. 
including the silent voices that we often ignore. It encourages us to be surprised and unsettled by what we read. And yes, separate from the gospel of Jesus, and, and to separate the gospel of Jesus from uh, the gospel's Jesus. And that's the journey I suppose the progressive theologians of our day are calling us to share in, to take a lead in, to empower people to shape a new and open and honest theology and spirituality for a different postmodern world. And if any congregation can do this, I suppose this congregation can and continue to do, to do it well. We need to see things in a new light. We are, after all, the denomination of the new light. We need to see things as they really are. Not to domesticate it, not to tame it, not to make it pleasant to our own ears. But we need to read the Bible and the parables and the stories of Jesus in a way that challenges us to be better people which challenges us to see the world in a different way, which challenges us to review our own uh, perceptions of ourselves and the, and the people around us. It's exciting and it's unnerving and it's challenging, but I believe it is the only way forward. Amen. As we leave this place, let us go out into the world with love in our hearts. Love for God, love for our neighbour and love for ourselves. And may that love bring goodness and kindness to all we meet. And may God, maker, saviour and comforter, bless us as we go, now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>